Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. I'm joined by Weekly Standard editor-at-large and founder and the man whose name is on the podcast, Bill Crystal. Bill, how are you doing? Fine, Eric. How are you? Fine, thank you. So this week, the big domestic news was not, as some people thought, um, whether a gaggle of millionaires would stand for the national anthem or not. Right. Somehow this, that story keeps just dragging on and dragging on. But no, tax reform, tax reduction, tax reform, actual movement on Capitol Hill, the Republicans looking like they may actually be able to achieve something. What's your take on tax reform, where it stands and where it's going? What happened this week is the Senate passed the budget resolution, which makes it possible to now do tax reform on what's called the Budget Reconciliation Bill, which requires 51 votes, 50 votes plus the vice president to break a tie, not 60 votes. So, And the House has passed its own budget resolution. I think the House will simply accept the Senate version this coming week. So they will be set up to take a real shot at tax reform, at the tax cuts they want, needing only uh, 218 votes in the House, which means they could lose about, what, 22, 23, 24 Republicans, uh, and um, 50 votes in the Senate, which means they could lose two Republicans, assuming they get no Democrats, which which may not be the case. But it does seem that they're pursuing a more partisan strategy than a than a bipartisan strategy. Is so there if, any other way, though, given the, the circumstances of the moment we're in, um, that anything big to get done would have to be done along partisan lines? I just don't see the Democrats cooperating on anything, even if they thought it was a decent piece of legislation. I don't, I'm not so sure about that. I think maybe really big, in the, because then you're overhauling the whole tax code, and then you get to some pretty fundamental competing visions of how tax policy should work. But there are a lot of medium-sized things that could be done in a, in a bipartisan way. I think we're going to see the Alexander Murray health care fix, for example, which isn't great, but maybe patches up the system in a way that's necessary in the short term. That will, I think, have bipartisan support in both bodies. So I myself might have gone for a more bipartisan, tried at least a bipartisan approach, maybe throw some infrastructure spending in there, to, to which Democrats tend to like. I think one advantage of trying a bipartisan approach is you can say you tried it. And then voters look up and say, OK, they tried bipartisan. It didn't work out. So now they're going to sort of jam it through at a partisan vote. I think starting with a partisan vote, and this was the case in Obamacare, Voters look at that and they think, well, I don't know, this is an awfully big change. Shouldn't, historically, these are usually somewhat bipartisan. And I think it makes it easier to make the case. I mean, one big problem with the Obamacare repeal and replace, this is sort of not commented on enough because everyone is so interested, understandably, I guess, in the inside baseball and Senator McCain and this stuff. It was unpopular. Every poll showed that it was, you know, about 20 percent, 25 percent approval, uh, 45, 50, 55 percent disapproval. Uh, pretty hard to pass legislation on the margin with that, those kinds of numbers. I think that same thing could hold. That would be a risk, I would say, on the tax bill. They're all focused on the inside baseball. How do they make the numbers sort of add up? How do they get make sure they can hold 50 Republicans? They need to make the case for it. It is actually, what did Mrs. Thatcher say, Prime Minister Thatcher? First you win the argument, then you win the uh, the legislation, I think. Uh, um, they didn't make the argument at all well on Obamacare, repeal and replace. Uh, so far, they've made a little bit, done a little better, I'd say, in making the argument on taxes. But it hasn't been sustained. It hasn't really, of course, we don't have the bill yet. It hasn't been detailed. So I think what happened this week was if it had failed, if the budget resolution had failed, it would have been a total disaster for the Republican leadership and for the Trump administration. The fact that it passed means at least they have a shot at doing tax reform. But I think it's still a dicey proposition. 
two big parts of this. There's the tax reduction part, and then there's the tax reform, getting rid of loopholes, simplifying the code. What do you think the prospects for reductions in the tax level is versus chances that there's going to be reduction in the complexity of the tax code? I mean, I'm not sure that trying to do both at once, you don't have to do both at once, obviously. And in fact, there are some who are, and I'm sympathetic to this, who are deficit hawks, who say we have $20 trillion of debt, we have decent economic growth now, uh, is is increasing the deficit by $1.5 trillion over 10 years, really a, a good idea. You know, tax cuts, if you put it that way, reductions in tax taxes, everyone says, great, if you say that's also an increase in the budget deficit, unless that those tax reductions are made up for by spending cuts, um, people might say, mm, I'm not so sure about that. So I think that's a mixed bag go, going in with one and a half. Tr- it looks like they're going to go in with a trillion, a trillion and a half dollars in the hole. And then we'll see if there really is fundamental simplification and whether there actually is in, are individual rate tax cuts. A lot of the actions on the corporate side, some of that I think is justifiable and legitimate from an economic point of view. But that takes some explaining. People don't Look, don't, you don't look around America and think corporations are suffering terribly. So capital has done pretty well. Labor's had a tougher time in the last 15, 20 years. You need an argument as to why reducing the corporate tax rate is good for the country and so forth. And again, I, I worry, uh, as someone who's generally disposed towards these kinds of reforms and cuts, that they haven't done a good job of making the argument particularly. Is it harder to make the argument when uh, a good part of the electorate doesn't pay much in the way of federal taxes. They pay uh, payroll taxes, but not federal income taxes. Um, so they they don't have an incentive in those in reductions of those taxes. But it's not clear that there's going to be redu- big reductions in federal income taxes for anyone much, except allegedly the top bracket, which I'm sure they're going to have to give up in negotiations. Honestly, I'd be pretty amazed if people making a million bucks or more are going to get an income tax reduction. So. I don't think most of the action on this bill is on the income tax, marginal income tax side, unlike Reagan in 81, unlike Bush to some degree in 2001. Uh, a lot of it's on the corporate side. I think, there's a, again, there are arguments for that. Um, yeah, in a way, you could argue some of the public's insulated from the uh, weight of the income tax burden. But, uh, you know, you either have to propose, maybe what people want to put back some of that tax burden, I don't know, but you have to adjust... Accordingly, Paul Ryan keeps saying we're going to have such a simple tax plan. But I do think they're a little out of touch. I was struck by Paul Ryan, whom I respect, saying, you know, simple tax plan. It's so simple on the back of a postcard. It's going to be great. Now, if you talk to upper middle class taxpayers who have a lot of uh, deductions and uh, charitable giving and a house, maybe two houses, uh, they and they have capital gains and dividends and so forth, the complexity of the tax. And, and they have accountants as well. Yeah, the complexity of the tax of the tax code is annoying to them. They hire accountants, or maybe they go to H&R Block or use one of the you know, turbo data things. And uh, you know they figure it out and they work it out. But yes, it would be attractive if it were simpler. But most Americans don't do that. Most Americans have their, even if they pay income tax incidentally, they have it withheld each week, every two weeks or every month from their paycheck. At the end of the day, they do some math. At the end of the year, they do some math and they either get a little more money, a little money back sometimes, or they pay a little more. They have they probably take the standard uh, uh, deduction quite often if they don't have a huge number of itemized exemptions, or they have the mortgage and one or two other things, and that's it. It's just and so the notion that I mean, Paul Ryan moves in circles where a lot of people complain about the complexity of the tax code. 
I wouldn't say you can go to an awful lot of conversations in middle America in coffee shops and bars and at baseball games and people aren't they'd like to pay less in taxes. They don't like the idea that some rich people are getting unfair breaks or that the code is is itself distorting behavior in certain ways. They might have opinions about what should be rewarded and what shouldn't be rewarded in terms of economic activity and so forth. But I I don't know, I'm a little I think it's a bit of a you know a bubble thing where people in a certain upper middle class bubble are very concerned about simplifying the tax code. They think that will be a very effective talking point, and I'm not sure it is. And I do think Republicans are in a little bit of a, a bubble, if you want to put it this way. Republican legislators spend a lot of time with Republican donors. They're pretty well off. They have real concerns about corporate rates, pass-throughs. Uh, they, they want various uh, reforms in the corporate tax code. That's pretty different from most Americans in the world they live in. And explaining to most Americans why this is good for economic growth, why this is good for middle class families, that's going to be a bit of a, a bit more of a task, I think, for Republicans than they now think. So tax reform, tax cuts, of course, brings up the issues of um, the deficit and the debt. And the uh, Weekly Standard has editorialized that when it comes to the deficit and the debt, that uh, the big issues that, uh, that legislators should be looking at are entitlements and entitlement reform. Does this tax legislation affect, for better or for worse, um, chances that there would be any entitlement reform? I mean, the budget resolution anticipates some entitlement reform and some cuts and re- reductions in the rate of growth of spending on entitlements. We'll see if either the tax legislation itself or whether accompanying legislation will address spending issues. I wouldn't say Donald Trump has said a lot about reducing the rate of growth of Medicare. Medicaid, they tried to address in the Obamacare reform, and that failed. Uh, Maybe they could bring that back up. Uh, Again, I think it's one thing to go for big tax cuts. Trump said, I saw in a tweet uh, yesterday, I think it was, this is the biggest biggest tax cuts in American history. It's one thing to go for big tax cuts under Reagan when two things things obtained, or really Bush in 01 to some degree. Federal debt, I mean, uh, Debt, total debt, total domestically held debt, I think it is, uh, was 25, I mean, it's just total debt, 25, 30% of GDP. 25%, I think, in 1981, 30% of, in, in 2001. Now it's about 75%. So we had just have much more of a debt burden because of the wars, but especially because of what we did after 2008. Maybe it was necessary, maybe it wasn't, but the stimulus and the massive deficit spending under Obama. So uh, if you are concerned about entitlement growth and about debt and deficit, and that was a pretty big Republican concern just a few years ago, you know, you worry about increasing that more and about not addressing it, which is a priority, which certainly, and it really hasn't been a priority of the Trump administration. The other thing about 1981 and to some degree 2001 was people had the sense the economy was floundering and really needed uh, a stimulus and a shot in the arm and entrepreneurs needed incentives. The economy's not been great the last seven or eight years since 2008, but uh, 2009, but it hasn't been terrible. It seems to be picking up some steam, actually. The stock market has been fanta- had a fantastic year. So you look at the stock market up 20% and you say to yourself, well, really? Is, I mean, did, is American capitalism suffering from a shortage of capital to invest? Uh, I mean, it seems a little unlikely. Should we benefit the people who have benefited the most from the stock market rise? Again, there could be economic arguments for that, but it's not intuitively obvious that that's the right thing to do. So I guess my take on it is, on the tax thing, fundamentally is this. They desperately want to pass something. They do not want to go back to the voters a year from now and say, we, we accomplished nothing big in this Congress. So that's a huge incentive for Republican senators and congressmen 
to sort of overcome their doubts and just pass anything, frankly, at this point, um, without worrying too much about every detail. The contrary argument, so that would suggest they will pass something. And I think most people in Washington, if you polled intelligent observers and lobbyists and people who are you know follow this stuff closely, they'd say they would bet on passage. The counter argument, though, is when they when the numbers really come out, when they have to actually produce a bill, they are they're going to be losers as well as winners. This administration has never been very good at making the argument. Uh, it's going to look lopsidedly pro wealthy just because of the way these especially a corporate-focused bill, is going to have to be designed, I think. Um, And I think it could become a tougher sell than people think. So you'll have these legislators wanting to do something, but looking at polls that show the bill underwater and getting hammered maybe by constituents in in town halls. It'll be an interesting dynamic. I think it's very unpredictable, actually. Well, let's switch gears, Bill. You tweeted uh, this week a story from The Telegraph in, in England And uh, I'll read just a taste from from this story. English literature undergraduates have been advised that a lecture which focuses on Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus and the Comedy of Errors will include discussions of sexual violence and sexual assault. The trigger warnings were published in in the English faculty's Notes on Lectures document, which is circulated to students. And this is at the Cambridge University. So... The snowflakes now have to be warned about Shakespeare. I mean, Titus Andronicus is it's a generally play. thought to be the most violent maybe of Shakespeare's plays and kind of disturbing in many ways, though God knows uh, you and I were talking about this before we went on the air. King Lear and others, the greatest plays are, are disturbing Cornwall as well. grinding out Gloucester's eye with the heel of his boots. That's not easy stuff. Yeah, and I mean, Richard III. But anyway, it is kind of astonishing, isn't it? And... Uh, you do wonder. I mean, really, anyone understands a certain kind of, you know, sentiment of giving people warnings. I mean, the trigger warning thing isn't entirely ridiculous at some level of abstraction, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, but, it, well, it's, it's kind of crazy. For I mean, it's one thing for something you've never heard of and whatever. People stumble into it unaware and they're going to see something graphic violence on the screen. But a lecture and a lecture on Shakespeare and that requires a trigger warning. Yeah, and the odd thing about it is you think about so much of the pop culture that these very same students are consuming on a regular basis, probably binge-watching you know, Game of Thrones, which has grotesque violence without the Shakespearean uh, literature to give it some buoyance. This is what is being consumed as pop culture. And then when it comes to serious culture, then all of a sudden we need protection and warnings. But you're going to have a lot of people writing and emailing in now and complaining that you've denigrated Game of Thrones. And how dare you say that it lacks the redeeming quality of, uh, of Shakespeare? But, um, you know, my sense of this, though, is I don't know if this is yours, too, that this, these, the alarm about trigger warnings and safe spaces and all that does not primarily come from students. As you say, I think these 19-year-olds who have watched Game of Thrones and played violent video games and gone to movies of, you know, Quentin slasher Tarantino flicks, movies, yeah. And, or, yeah, or, or slasher flicks for that matter. I mean, the idea that they're like, oh, my God, what might I hear about Titus Andronicus? I don't really buy that. This is the administrators, and there really is a kind of core now of uh, liberal, to say the least, but uh, administrators, obviously in the U.K. as well as in the U.S., who's, who they find 
They justify their jobs. Right. Which and have, they, those jobs have proliferated. Correct. Over the last and the job decades. is to be in charge of doing this kind of thing. Otherwise, right. who needs them? But also their ideological prejudices and, and their view of what it means to sort of guard these sensitive young souls uh, from being offended. And they, they're the ones who seem to be the impetus, I, I think, behind a lot of this. But it's, I mean, one can make fun of it and, and one shouldn't exaggerate. I suppose how terrible it is. But it does, it is a kind of. There's something kind of sad and pathetic about it. And I think it ties into some of the other things that have been going on on campus, this you know, sort of push to um, get rid of speakers who might make some part of the campus uncomfortable. Yeah, I very much agree with that. I mean, that I think it's very important to stand up and say, in principle, education is disruptive and sometimes will offend your prejudices or your preconceptions. It might offend things you believe that are true. You, you'll also have to deal with people who make arguments that you don't like hearing and and think maybe have pernicious have a pernicious effect on society. I would argue that Marx and Nietzsche, to take two thinkers I studied and taught, you know, ended up it might have been better for the well being of all of humanity that they had never lived or written, but they did, and one needs to study their thought, even if one finds it uncomfortable. So, again, I'm not gratuitously assigning horrendous hate literature in class. And if that were happening on a widespread uh, basis, if I were teaching back teaching a pen and assigning, you know, Mein Kampf and, and sort of horrible, scurrilous, racist literature and stuff, the department chair would be well within his rights to call me in and tell me, well, ask me what I'm well, doing and probably fire me, but certainly tell me to stop. But but this guy, giving a lecture on Titus Andronicus is not that, and it is distressing to see this uh, happening, not just in the U.S., but, but in the very home of Shakespeare. Bill Crystal, thanks for joining us on the Crystal Clear Podcast. My pleasure, Eric. Support for the Crystal Clear Podcast comes from The Great Courses Plus. I've been enjoying The Great Courses Plus video learning service. You should check it out, too. Learn more about anything that interests you from some of the best professors and experts in the world. The Great Courses Plus has over 8,500 videos in many different topics, history, science, business, even hobbies like photography and cooking, and you get unlimited access to stream and download all of them. With the Supreme Court back in session, I recommend checking out the Great Courses Plus lecture series on the history of the Supreme Court. One lecture in that course in particular that's relevant as we continue to debate the principle of free speech is called Burning Flags and Burning Crosses. In this lecture, Professor Peter Irons examines the court's rulings in two cases involving symbolic speech. Flag burning is political protest and cross burning is an expression of racial hatred. As well as major changes in the court's membership, I know you're going to enjoy The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. So they're offering our listeners an entire month to watch any of their videos for free. But you need to sign up by using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. Start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. That's it for today's Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.